running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> welcome back. Um, welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. My name's Ian Bird, and this is Bone Ditch, which is my series of short stories, which are all stapled together to form a sort of a novel. Uh, you can read more about it at www.boneditch.wordpress.com. And it's been a long time since the last time I posted. So thank you very much if you're listening to this. Thank you very much for your patience. Um, well, we are at the final part of chapter three, the chapter Mistaken, which is all about the story of Catherine Eliopoulos. And this is Gobbit 9, The Mercy of Flowers. Elliot sat back and passed the fresh pint of beer to Dove. Go on, she said. Dove told her the version of the story that he had heard. So that night, the thing promised Daddy that it would gobble him up, and maybe Mummy as well. What the fuck? And Daddy said, no, please, you mustn't do that, or who'll look after my little daughters? So the thing said that it would let Daddy live, and Mummy too, if Daddy agreed to give one of the thing's flowers to one of his daughters to wear in her hair. And Daddy said, wait, why am I doing this? And the thing replied, there are so many little girls out there. When I smell my flower, then I'll know, and then I'll know who to steal away. Little Zack boggled at the story, then reached to grab a mouthful of Catherine's hair. That is not an appropriate story. Gavin's taste for the brutal and short had clearly dwindled over the years. Becoming an uncle had atrophied his delight in the unacceptable, just as it had energised his utterly superfluous empathy. Children, you could say, had saged him. Catherine, meanwhile, was affronted by the criticism. It absolutely is appropriate. Mum used to tell me this when I was little. And look at your mother. Gavin had a point, but Catherine wasn't in the business of taking things personally. She scooped up the one-year-old and whispered the rest of the tale into the baby's ears, away from Gavin's sensitive proclivities. He spoiled the effect, however, by following her into the bedroom. No. She turned back to him. He had that look on his face. No, Gavin, I don't want kids. Gavin left the room. It was late May, three years since Danton Took had fallen to his death. Her life had become pleasingly challenging and happily chaotic in the interim, and Catherine had discovered within herself a capacity for intelligence and good instinct that she had hitherto only suspected. As that afternoon on the roof had ably demonstrated, Catherine had an innate talent for problem-solving, and her enthusiasm for these courageous flights of ambition and initiative had galvanised her nerve and her imagination. She was getting better and better at everything. No one remembered Danton Took anymore. Catherine Eliopoulos had always been senior account manager for Skull PR. Meanwhile, her mother was deteriorating, but still able to live at the retirement home Catherine had found for her some years before. She had made it through another spring... Once again, she would see her garden blossom and bloom. Behind the block of flats Catherine had grown up in had been that garden her mother had adopted. And behind that garden had been the secret walled home that Catherine and her sister had always been a little afraid of as children. Slow, dawdling, semi-comatose elderly people, wandering in dressing gowns and imagining that today would never arrive. And now her mother lived there. When Catherine sat with her mother, looking across the garden she had saved years before, Catherine could look up into the same window she'd looked down from as a six-year-old. Be sure to wear some flowers in your hair, her own father had said as she had set out for school each morning. But Dad was long gone now, and so was her sister. Now it was just Catherine and her mother, bearing witness at their far away long ago home away from home. It wasn't so much bittersweet as infuriating exactly how much in value the building had skyrocketed in the 15 years since Catherine and her mother had finally sold up. Gavin wants kids, she said to her mother. He's talking about it again. Mother didn't say anything. Well... He isn't talking about it, but there are gaps in conversation these days that you could roll a pram through. Mother didn't say anything. I know you like grandchildren, but you respect me for my decision, don't you? Gavin doesn't want a life without kids, 
but I think he respects me. I know he respects me, but I think he believes that one morning I'm going to wake up to my biological alarm clock and start thinking with my uterus. He's betting on something prehistoric inside of me. Catherine held her mother's hand. I don't think he appreciates exactly how prehistoric the insides of me are. It's not a crib down there, is it? Catherine Eliopoulos never, ever felt guilty. But that isn't to say that she lacks self-awareness. Self-awareness, what saved her from the folly of confession, or self-flagellation, or indigestion for that matter, if anything, she wished that she had killed someone years before. It was a wonderfully crystallising thought. Murderers are so rare that once you become one, surely the chances of you ever encountering another one, even worse, fade away like bloody stains in the rain. The world had become a much safer place since that afternoon on the roof with Danton. And the anger... It had evaporated, gone forever, lanced like a boil, broken like a hymen. She got so much more done now, now that she had sloughed her rage and her fear. Besides, she'd always liked the view from Danton's office. Catherine imagined a six-year-old little girl staring down from that window at the bloodstain left below. Catherine combed her mother's hair. It smelled of honeysuckle. Be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Her dad had been a hippie. No wonder he had split, once he'd gotten a good look at his eldest daughter's dreams. We can't afford you. Don't be silly, said Catherine. How can you not afford peace of mind? Carl Robinson shrugged at Catherine, his smile a gaping wet knife wound. In this economy, we think fear and sleepless nights are slimming. It wasn't the first time Catherine had heard the argument from a potential client. As her company had risen in stature, so she and her kindred were finding themselves pricing themselves out of the market. When growth is compulsory, you have to start to think twice about who you're going to eat next. Gorge on life too low on the food chain, and you strangle to death everything above. But if your gastronomic tastes run to the Leviathan, then you're going to have to spend a little bit more time on the hunt. In short, the PR services offered by her company were going more and more frequently to the only kind of people who could afford their relentlessly increasing charges, namely those whose public image was so toxic, or so perilously likely to suffer inordinate toxicity at a moment's notice, the grotesque fees were the lesser of two very literal evils. The rarefied air that Catherine had once enjoyed in her job was now a little more choked. Her career had more of the garrote about it these nights. Catherine had tried to argue with her chief executive that endless growth didn't have to be their business model, since for one thing it existed nowhere else in nature, but Richard Calvary wasn't convinced on the laws of nature, a character trait that had become more useful given the industrial infernal circles that his new business model was now steering him towards. It's going to be war criminals next. You do know that, don't you? Catherine, haven't you heard? We're all war criminals. Richard, you don't like it? Maybe I don't like it. So find me something better. The thought had come to her on a summer's evening. The sun was still scorching her skin, even now after it had exploded across the far horizon. She stretched out and leaned forward on the railing overlooking the Thames. She was calm and happy. She wasn't worrying or panicked. The thought was casual, even lazy. She could just kill Richard and take his place. It had been done once before, and the only consequence had been a £10,000 a year salary increase and three hours more sleep each night. Was this how she would solve problems for the rest of her life? How did that make her feel? Be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Catherine never saw her sister anymore, her little sister. She should want to write to her. Her mother might have her address somewhere, the next time she visited, maybe. The man in black came up behind her, carrying their drinks. Perfect night for Pinot Noir, he smiled. It would be wrong to say that he had mandibles instead of a jaw and rows of shark teeth instead of the old and familiar selection of incisors and molars, but the stain his smile left was of something that swarmed from a hive and could regenerate sharper and sharper teeth for the rest of time. Most of him seemed to be merely zone one yuppie, but there remained a stain of something of the shite about him. There's a deep vein flavour to it, isn't there? He said, like it bleeds black. 
you say the sweetest things. Well, Catherine, my mother was a poet. What did your team say about my offer? Catherine asked. He looked embarrassed. Oh dear, she had embarrassed the war criminal. How socially awkward. It's a good deal, Nikolai. I know it is. I'll be frank. The kind of services you are offering could be the difference between Easy Street and La Hague, but the bosses, they aren't so sure the wolves are at the door just yet. Those aren't wolves. They're avenging angels. You're the wolves. And by the way, the last legislation those angels published pushed 13% of your business into the outer darkness. Your bosses will be elder ones non grata at all the events of the season if that pesky art of the moral universe keeps bending towards justice. And you are just the people to bend that arc back from the right to the sinister, are you? Nikolai asked. We're just pretty good at lighting. You'd be amazed what the right kind of fire can do to your silhouette. Burn, baby, burn. Flirting with these types was becoming par for the course, but it was best to keep the triests with the devil to the short term. They had no staying power, probably because they were used to getting their way so quickly. I do know you're tempted, Catherine said. Nikolai put his hand on her knee. Of course. Isn't that why we get up in the morning? <laughs> Don't be offended, but I ate evil for lunch. I'm looking for something more filling tonight. No. I don't think we're going to be able to do business, Catherine. You need us. You might be right, said Nikolai, but my masters take their orders from a firepower. They think we're living through the Kali Yuga. They're betting on black for another 1,700,000 years. Meanwhile, I think that the age of sin is going to surprise you. I'm not sure companies that invest in favour of the supporters of apartheid and advocate against AIDS research are going to be welcomed into the 90s. I disagree, said Nikolai. This kerfuffle over the Berlin Wall will die down again. Someone will pick some camel fucker for us to go to war with and we'll all ride our erections into Bush's second term. Red meat's going to be on the menu for a while yet. Just say, oh no. But, said Catherine, we've bought enough coke to keep this party going for a while longer. When the angels do eventually get here, they'll be picking clean the corpses of far worse than us for a while. So you're saying I should find worse than you to do business with. Long is the way and hard that into hell waits panting for midnight. Do you have any suggestions? I do, actually, Nikolai grimaced. Go on. Catherine, is this really what you want to be doing? You think I don't know you wear that perfume when you meet me because you don't want me to smell your sweat? What are you going to have to do for the next man? Starve yourself a week before meeting him? This can't be a happy prospect for you. I'm grateful for the protection, Catherine said, but you're not my first monster. Tell me. The Thames does sometimes stink of sulphur. It isn't always just the manifestation of a creeping existential horror. Well, you've asked three times, so how can I say no? There's this company called Bone Ditch. Be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Years and years ago, Catherine and her sister rushed out of the building, across the wasteland, past the old folks' home, and up to the street towards the bus stop. They were late for school. The elder daughter looked back over her shoulder, up at her window. Daddy was up there, waving, smiling. She waved back and instinctively touched the flower he had given her on her way out of the flat. Why didn't Daddy give me a flower? asked Lali. Well, you can have mine if you want. No, Daddy said that flower was for you. The two girls leaned back against the wall by the bus stop. They were eleven and ten. Their mum was Indian, their dad was Greek, and they'd been living in the shadow of Victoria Station all their lives. They had their mother's willpower and convictions, and their father's imagination and ambition, and at this stage in their lives they interpreted this as sharing their mother's faith in their father's stupid schemes. They stood at the bus stop and talked about nothing. Catherine watched a bee drop from the sky towards a bush of chrysanthemums. The bush was across the road behind a tall metal fence. It was probably safe all round to look up the flowers to stop them from hurting anyone. They're the same flowers as in your hair, said Lali. She was right. Their friends appeared alongside them, also waiting for the bus. The bus was late. It was only half past eight in the morning and already it was too hot. Everyone was saying that this summer was the hottest one ever. It's hotter than hell, everyone said. Catherine might have been imagining it, but she was suddenly certain that she could hear footsteps. 
clip-clopping towards them, skipping gently, but skipping deliberately, skipping towards them. Catherine, I like your flower. Yeah, our daddy gave it to her. Why didn't she give you one? I don't know. She must like Catherine better. That's not nice. Clip-clop, clip-clop. Catherine touched the flower absent-mindedly. Daddy never usually gave her anything. He was hardly ever awake before they went to school and was usually out of the flat by the time they came back. She didn't like to admit it, even just to herself, but the flower felt nice there. It felt like a kiss. Now she could imagine that she could hear a playful rap-rap-rap off in the distance, alongside the clip-clopping, as if whoever was walking this way was tapping along a fence's iron railings with a walking stick as they got closer. Some silly, gentle person. Clip-clop, rap-rap-rap. She could even hear the gentle person's whistling as they walked, something silly but memorable, like a song a grown-up sings as you fall asleep in bed. It wasn't a walking stick, thought Catherine to herself, her father's imagination stretching inside her mind. It was the gentle person's tail, swishing in the hot air and rapping against the iron railings. The gentle person wouldn't like the iron, of course, it was bad for it, but sometimes you can't resist that discomfort, like picking at a scab and being quite pleased with yourself when you see an arc of blood under your fingernail. It's hotter than hell, said one of the girls. Your flower will be dead before the bus gets here. Rap, 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 so swished the tail. Clip, clop, so trotted the pair of hooves. Catherine was pleased to feel pretty standing in the sun, a flower in her hair given her by her daddy, while her friends around her fought. Nikolai was as good as his word and gave Catherine a name and a telephone number. She tried doing her own research into Bone Ditch, but couldn't find any meaningful reference anywhere. Not at Company's house, not in that archive in the national newspaper she always went to, not with her contact at Interpol. The closest she got was a poem called A Revenger in the Bone Ditch that had been published in a copy of The Yellow Book in 1896. He laid down his bones in a field of dead ditches till cold brackish foam flooded over his britches. Well, at least it rhymed. Stuart had looked pleased with himself that he had found the poem. He was an old university friend of hers. Now he worked in a library in the city and barely saw daylight. Is this relevant? He asked her. Almost certainly not. Glad to have helped. I've heard of the yellow book before, haven't I? Catherine asked. Stuart laughed. Our one and only date. 1983. At the George Morrie exhibition. At the George Morrie bedsit. That's the one, Stuart replied. Morrie had a small collection of copies. I told you about it then. London Literary Magazine, published in the 1890s. Arty, pervy, literary weirdness. Very disreputable. Of course, Catherine said. What a wonderful night. Yellow book and blue nun. You certainly know how to treat a lady. Do I? Stuart smiled. He really didn't. Catherine had worked out that he would work it all out eventually, but until then, why spoil the surprise? Of human bondage, Stuart said. Excuse me? Somerset Maugham mentioned the yellow book in Of Human Bondage. She kissed him on the cheek. That's nice. It'll all come together in the end. Catherine waltzed out of the midnight library. Stuart watched her leave. He would never see her again. Bondage. The day before her meeting with Bonditch, she visited her mother again in the old people's home that lay in the shadow of their childhood home. Her mother was still sitting out in the garden, her garden, the reclaimed wasteland site that lay between the two buildings. Are you happy, Mum? The ancient lady, barely more than paper-bound bones now, turned to face her eldest daughter and took her hand. Her brown eyes were wet with tears, but she nodded her head, quickly and with strength. The hands that held her hand, the first hands in the world that Catherine had noticed, were still strong as they had always been strong. If all I wanted was to have been happy, Catherine imagined her saying, then I could have been very happy indeed. Are you off? Gavin left the washing up in the kitchen as Catherine fastened her shoes and checked her briefcase one last time. The prospectuses and the projections and the reports from Skull PR's office, a copy of a copy of a copy of the issue of the yellow book that carried the Bonditch poem, a leather-bound book of contacts and telephone numbers that was worth its weight in human hearts. Gavin Donner looked at her and recognised the battle armour. 
In her black linen suit and crisp white cotton shirt, buttoned to the throat, she was dressed for war. Mascara was deep black, like a mask around her eyes, and her lips were obviously bloodstained. Catherine had even chosen rings to wear that turned her fingers into silver-sheathed talons. A bird skull, a hooked eye, a crescent moon. If she took a swing at someone, she could easily do a lot of damage. Gavin wasn't given to gory thoughts, but something Corvidian fluttered to his shoulders as he wiped the soap suds off his jeans. This is going to be a strange meeting, isn't it? Catherine smiled. It's perfectly safe. I didn't ask you whether it was safe. I know you didn't. She kissed him and reached for the door. Gavin stopped her, pulled her back and kissed her again. Knock him dead, he said. I'll cook tonight. I'll pick up something nice on the way home. Gavin loved her. He had loved her for so long that his understanding of love had changed shape to fit the contours of her strange and angry soul. Even when she looked scary, even when she said scary things, he was in love with her. Especially in those times, in fact, when her strange vibration set up a peculiar atmosphere of questing impatience. He liked that he was the gentle person in their relationship. The thought reminded him of a song, and he darted back into the kitchen. Gavin, I've got to go. Just a second. Gavin came out again with something in his hands. He reached out and tucked it behind her ear. Be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. The flower in her hair looked like a bloodstain, but Gavin thought it looked pretty. That Monday morning, in the height of the London summer, years before, the air was full of bees. Above the sound of her clamouring school friends, Catherine could still hear the gentle person approaching, heels clicking on the scorched pavement, like high heels or cloven hooves. She had a thought. That Monday morning, in the height of the other London summer, the air was full of bees. Above the sound of the other customers in the cafe, Catherine could still hear the relentless ticking of her watch, counting down the seconds until her guest from Bonditch arrived. She had a thought. Stop arguing! Catherine ran across the road at the bus stop and everyone stared at her. She vaulted over the raw iron fence and landed in the small garden on the other side. Next, she cut seven flowers, one for her sister and their six friends squabbling with them. She clambered back over the fence, this time nicking her calf on the hot metal. It bled, but the pain was pleasant. She ran back across the road and handed out flowers to everyone. That's better, isn't it? The seven other girls arranged their flowers and admired each other. Catherine was pleased. She didn't like to stand out. She didn't like to be the centre of attention. Clip, clop, clip, she looked up. The bus hadn't arrived yet, but across the road now stood a man in a neat black suit with a white shirt underneath, buttoned to the collar, but no tie. His hair was brushed back from his grey face and his eyes were a brilliant blue, like the blue a small child would make eyes in a picture. At his feet, the man had a small aircraft suitcase that he'd been dragging along on its trundling wheels. The man looked at the collection of girls, perfectly still. They noticed him and stared back, laughing and making fun. He ignored their taunts, but continued to stare, as if trying to work out a puzzle. His face hardened. I am so glad you contacted us, Miss Eliopoulos. The woman was about 40 years older than her, and elegantly dressed in 50s restraint. She removed her sunglasses, revealing eyes that were as black as coal. Midnight mascara framed the black holes, turning her face into a very skull. She ordered a bottle of red wine and a single glass. It was 10.30 on a Monday morning. Thank you for coming, Miss Castiza. Please call me Graciana. Grace before chastity. And please call me Catherine. Unusual name. What do you mean? You're Indian, aren't you? Excuse me, Bengali? With a little Greek thrown in. My mother's from Bangladesh, said Catherine, but she lived several years in Belfast before she came to England. She picked up the name while she was there. Never miss the chance to pick up a new name. So, what brings you to Bonditch? Well, I thought we might be able to help you. Quite probably. What are you offering? Catherine had a Gratiana a portfolio, 
a spectrum of corporate logos running from the merely unsavoury to the occasionally evil. We've worked with these organisations to improve their public relations. We create strategies and implement projects both to alleviate popular approbation and to take advantage of opportunities to maximise goodwill from marketplaces and potential marketplaces. Isn't the name Skull PR a little on the nose, said Graciana? Doesn't that get in the way of your ability to appear normal and non-threatening? <laughs> we took the name because of our founder. His name's Richard Calvary. Calvary means skull. There is a green hill far away without a city wall. Yes, I would have called you Green Hill PR. I admit we are perhaps a little enamoured of the glamour of the buccaneer. Nothing like a grinning death's head to refute mortality. But, said Catherine, it's interesting. The skull isn't naturally a negative image. It's believed that in biblical times the skull was probably more of a symbol of individuality than of death. Really, said Gratiana Castiza. I didn't know that. Go on. Think about it. The head was the part of yourself that you presented unadorned to the world. You looked at people with your head. You spoke to people through your head. You heard what they had to say with your head. You nourished yourself through your head. Remember what the caterpillar said? Yes, said Gratiana. Feed your head. Interesting. But we're not interested in public relations just now. I hear that a lot, usually from organisations that think the sky won't fall in for the next financial year. Even so, we think we're doing pretty well avoiding popular scrutiny. I found your name, Catherine said, and the person who gave it to me didn't seem to think he was directing me towards a saint. We despise saints, Catherine. Sainthood is something that's bestowed and we don't trust anything that can only be given. And we asked Nikolai Orwell to give you our name. What? said Catherine. We saw you before you saw us. Years before, on that last morning, the man with the suitcase was still there, standing in the heat, watching the girls, looking for something. Finally, Catherine felt afraid. Lali stuck her tongue out at him and her fear suddenly became dread. It was as if her little sister was an outgrowth of her own body, an all-too-vulnerable conglomeration of weaknesses and nerve endings that she couldn't shield or protect. Catherine suddenly flashed on an image of her little sister, cold and alone and frightened, her little hands grasping at one another, trying to feel comforted, each tear another fatal blow to a once-happy memory now worse than useless. There was Catherine Eliopoulos's horror. It had always been there. It had just been looking for a way in and now it was there forever. Did the grey-faced man with the suitcase notice? Catherine put her hand on Lale's shoulder and realised that she wasn't breathing. Only the terrified and the dead don't breathe. The man looked at her more clearly this time. And then he straightened himself up and walked off briskly. Catherine! Lale! It was her mother rushing up the street. Tension within Catherine crumpled, taking with it the skeleton of control that she'd been using to hold back the panic. She shuddered and started to cry. The chemicals that flooded her body were so potent that it could be argued that she was literally no longer herself. Her mother dropped to her knees and hugged her daughters closely and tightly. She was crying as well. She snatched the flowers from their hair and threw them aside and she kissed and she kissed again the two girls. I didn't know, sobbed their mother. I didn't know. I didn't know what he had agreed. Mummy, what happened? Catherine didn't realise it until that morning in the cafe with Gratiana Castiza, 13 years later. But she had noticed spatters of blood on her mother's face that morning. Spatters of blood, but no wounds. Catherine suddenly felt the panic that had come from being in that man's company, only now that she was sitting beside Gratiana Castiza. This was the day that she had met the devil, or the wrong kind of saint. But over the years she had come to remember it as only the day that her father had left them all forever. Gratiana passed her own document back at Catherine. It was a single sheet of paper with a photograph and a name printed on it. The name was William Ellis. The photograph was of the man with the grey face from that morning 13 years before. He was a lone shark, said Gratiana Castiza. 
He did very well for himself in the late 60s and the first half of the 70s. The police believed that he had been dealing with your father, Georgios Eliopoulos. They believed your father had owed a great deal of money. Ellis vanished in the summer of 1976. Ellis had a hobby, one the police were never able to prove. He liked to steal and eat children. Catherine flushed with shame. Ridiculous, inappropriate, horrific shame. Implicated. She felt implicated. I believe your father couldn't settle his debts with Mr Ellis. So he agreed to give up one of his children. I know you never met Ellis, so I believe your father marked one of you out somehow and set you up to be picked up. Gratiana passed her glass of wine over to Catherine. She drank from it greedily. But you're both still here. Unlike your father and Mr Ellis, who were never seen again after the summer of 1976. Your mother never left that flat, did she? Until she had to move into a retirement home. And even then she insisted upon the home just bordering the building you grew up in. She travelled a lot before she met my father, said Catherine. She was already 40 when she had me and settled down. She didn't want to move again. The early onset dementia made things difficult for her, said Miss Castiza. She wanted to be still. Yes, said Catherine. When did your mother take on the garden in the grounds of your building? It was, it was, a nice project for me. Since your father left, I've had so much time on my hands. Yes, 1976. How plausible would you say it was that there are at least two dead bodies buried under that flower garden? Catherine couldn't say anything. She felt paralysed. Every couple of years, through the second half of the 70s and the start of the 80s, her mother would come up with some wonderful new scheme for expanding the garden. No one else was interested. It was her pet project. Shy of being looked at, she had dug out the new beds after dark. Catherine remembered looking out of her bedroom window one night to watch her mother dig the beds, dumping in the specially prepared compost to be sure that the flowers grew in well. I... I'm not here for Skull PR. I'm here for you. I've reached the end of my current role with Bone Ditch and I'm looking for a replacement. I've been watching you. Don't be afraid. Not of me, at any rate. I admire your mother, and I admire you. Danton Took was a piece of shit. Manure, rather. Just a shame the body had to go to waste. Bone Ditch are a unique organisation, and we are in a unique position to change your life, irreparably and for the better. This will sound like a threat, but it is genuinely not intended that way. I would like you to come away with me for a month, perhaps longer if you decide to, to learn about what I am offering. Are you with the police? Catherine said. We are with the opposite. Come with me. I have a flight arranged tonight for Berlin. I can't come away tonight. Well, it's tonight or never. I need an instinctive decision, not a mature deliberation. Besides, if I give you any longer, then you might go to the other side with what you know about us. Here's the air ticket. She passed a paper folder to Catherine. Oh, and here's the passport that goes with the ticket. Gratiana stood up. The wine was finished. It was wonderful to meet you at last. If you decide to come with me, Catherine, I'll be in the first-class lounge at Heathrow by six this evening. Why would I come away with you? You're looking for something, she said. Believe me, we're something. You're a killer and it shocks you how little that shocks you. You aren't even shocked that your own mother has a larger headcount than you. You're starting to wonder what you could possibly do to shock yourself. All that you've done... And your best ambition is to work for the people who make the guns, who buy the guns, who shoot the guns. That's not us. And I don't even want you to work for us. I want you to join with us. We don't sell guns. We're the legion who convinces those people to turn their guns on themselves. For what reason? Catherine asked. We don't believe in reason. We believe in rhyme. You thought you'd find the answer in evil, but we're better than that. We're profane. No one knows who we are, but we're going to end the world in fire and desire and disorder. But of course the final rhyme is on that passport. Catherine Eliopoulos looked down at the passport Gratiana had given her. It had her picture, but not her name. The name on the passport was Kataki Eleison. 
Outside the window of the cafe, Catherine noticed a small, slight, skinny figure watching her. The figure raised her hand in a friendly wave. Kataki waved back. Kataki Eleazan told you that story, Elliot Rent asked years later. She did, when she recruited me, Dove said. Are you trying to recruit me now? She said. I'm just telling you stories. I know you've been collecting them. Dove Kittery wasn't smiling. There's worse things than appearing in a story, Elliot. To be continued. So that was the end of chapter three. Uh, of course, you can download all three parts as podcasts. And the full chapter is available via the website, which is www.boneditch.wordpress.com. Hopefully, you'll tune into another one. Meanwhile, thank you for visiting. Thank you for listening. And take care. Be seeing you. <laughs>